Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Reflections by Spectacles. Today we're going to be talking about an insight that I wrote about the global supply chain, labor shortages, in particularly the trucking industry, what this means for the American economy and American democracy, and what we can do about it. So to get started, if you are listening to this or you've read the piece, you've probably heard, you know, someone saying maybe on, you know, CNN or something, or maybe you've read um, an article or two in, in, in the news media talking about the supply chain and supply chain shortages um, and basically why it might be hard to get things or why certain things are super expensive. But it also can be sort of hard to pull out what, what exactly that means. And it's difficult because it's sort of a catch-all term for a lot of things that are going on, right? I mean, we have sort of, there's a chain of manufacturing and purchasing and manufacturing more and assembling and stuff like that, that eventually ends in the product that, that gets into your hands, right? I mean, thinking about like an iPhone, for example. Or a uh, pencil, or a, a Ticonderoga <laughs> pencil. A pencil, yeah. Made in, <clears throat> if you, some parts if you, will be made. If, if in, you don't get that reference, you should listen to the bird's eye episode on small government and liberal yeah, we democracy. Did a while ago. It's very good. It's an old episode, but it's very good. And we talk about Milton Friedman's. Uh, Not Milton Friedman, someone else's. Some, uh, so, so, Lawrence Reed's. No, I forgot the name. Some, so, Milton Friedman also did a thing. It must have been inspired by him. But some, some conservative economist's story of the... Leonard Reed. Leonard Reed's story of the Ticonderoga right. pencil and yeah. how it's a proof of the magic of free markets. Yeah. Um, good episode, good episode, and you'll understand the reference then, so go listen to it. Yeah. But anyway, right, we have this the, these supply chains, which is how goods are, are made, you know, parts of a good are made in, you know, maybe in one country or in one state in the United States, there's other parts are made somewhere else, and they're shipped from one place to another to be assembled somewhere, and eventually they become the final product. But because of COVID, for a variety of reasons, which Philip kind of dives into very well, if I do say so myself, in this Thanks, piece... <laughs> in this piece that there have been these disruptions and there's a variety of reasons it's multi-causal but there have been these disruptions that have caused prices to go up which is what we're seeing with a lot of consumer goods or to be simply there are shortages that it's hard to get things and he actually starts with something that i noticed first i was walking around Santa Monica with my Congratulations, girlfriend. I was walking around Santa Monica with my girlfriend. We were walking around and, and I noticed that there were these just ships off of the coast, right off, like in the, like just sort of in the, you know, right off the coast. And I was like, what, what the hell are these ships? Figured out there. I mean, they, they had to be container ships, which they are, uh, because they're waiting to dock at the Port of Los Angeles to unload their goods. Harry thought they were aircraft carriers. I did not think they were aircraft <laughs> carriers. I did not. Anyway, although aircraft carriers are super cool. But they're waiting to dock because they're having trouble finding. There's, there's a labor shortage at the Port of Los Angeles, and they are also having trouble... Um, finding um, people to drive to truckers to drive the goods across country. And so there are these problems that we're facing in the supply chain, basically, is the, is the thrust of the article, which yeah. we took a long time and made too many jokes explaining. But I think that that's an important sort of thing to, to, to wrap our heads around because it actually is affecting the quality of life for all Americans. I mean, people around the world, but right now we're just talking about American citizens. But I think that, that is, it's important for us to know, and I think it has these consequences. So maybe you want to tease out some of, some of that, Philip? Yeah, I mean, I think... There are a bunch of different points I try to make in the piece. One of them is that this claim that the reason we're still seeing labor shortages is because people are essentially lazy is kind of, in my opinion, a ridiculous argument, especially because a lot of these claims, a lot of these claims come from 
more conservative, more free market people. And if you're pro free market, you should be the first to recognize that if people don't want to work a job, that's then the job is not good enough. Right. If wages or labor conditions are not sufficient. That's a that's that's a job problem, not right. an, not a potential employee problem. And, you know, so just thought that was a, a hypocritical and foolish. But also I want to I, I tried to point out how, you know, this is particularly with the trucking, because I talk about global supply chain and how COVID's impacted it and how it's would be beneficial for the U.S. to invest in global vaccination for its own purposes, right? Know? It's it's good for us to have other countries vaccinated because it can help ease the supply side on, in other countries. But also with the trucking industry, I think the bigger point I tried to make is that this really ought to be a wake-up call. As I was saying, you know, if people aren't working these jobs, these jobs aren't good enough, that either signals, one, you need to figure out a way to do things differently, mm-hmm. you know, because if you can't fill these jobs, you can't fill these jobs. And I pointed to, you know, honestly, I think it's kind of insane that cross-country truck freight is as critical to the U.S. domestic supply chain as it is. Yeah. I mean, in what world does it make... A great amount of sense that the way we transport goods across the enormous country of the United States is by putting them into one small container, putting them on one truck, and having that truck driven by one person across the country. Right. I mean, in terms of human labor power, fossil fuel and carbon emissions, the working conditions, working of, conditions of, of and time efficiency. Yeah. I mean, all these things. Right. It points away from from truck freight from and being so a good system and i think the other option you have and this is an option that for a long time republicans loved thinking of like hw bush and prior here especially right increase immigration yeah because yeah. immigrants tend to be more ambitious and willing to do things settled americans are less willing to do now i also am very strongly of the mind that we should not be allowing an industry to practice debt peonage right on its workers in the way that the sh- shipping industry has in case you don't know how that works basically for one thing debt peonage it generally as a term means basically keeping someone indebted to you intentionally so that they cannot get out of work right it's how sharecropping worked, for example. It's how it's how a number of forms of modern slavery operate. Very exploitative. Yeah, basically, what you do is you up, you upfront sell people on a bunch of things, and with the promise that they'll be able to make back the money very quickly and pay it off, and then they'll have the freedom to do what they want. But actually, it's very predatory, and you can't pay it back very quickly. And the upfront costs put you in a great amount of debt to the employer, and then you can't leave because you're contractually obligated to work off that debt. This is, it sounds, that sounds like something that shouldn't be found in America, probably, you're thinking, but it's very common in the truck freight industry because what they'll do is you've got to get certification and you've got to get your own big rig because almost everyone in the industry are owner operators. They operate their own vehicle and that costs a lot of money up front. So basically, these companies will go to people. Or people who will come to them on job offers of really great apparent pay, 
but at the end of the day they sign a contract to go undergo all this training to pay for this training and they'll loan them a big rig from the company and they'll operate it on the promise of this substantial pay but then it turns out that actually an enormous portion of the pay you're getting has to be dedicated to the upkeep of the vehicle gas you know maintenance things like this so it turns out they've formulated it so that it's very difficult to earn enough money at the rate they pay you considering the costs that you incur operating the vehicle to actually pay your way out of the system right so it's it's a really sick and exploitative way of doing business and so for one thing i think that shouldn't be allowed and i also think it would be great if we could improve labor conditions of 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 truck freight drivers but the other solution is bring people in who are more willing to do that kind of work than than settled americans right i mean i think we we should be clear in that case right the conditions should improve and they but i think that it is you know given that even jobs, if, even if conditions do improve the nature of the work necessitates being away from your family for a long time and these are things that more settled people aren't willing to do right and so if you're you know looking to make a life for yourself in the united states you know high paying jobs that respect you know human dignity but may not be jobs that you know, everyone wants are things that, you know, it's good to increase immigration to make, you know, that sort of thing possible. I mean, I think that that is, that's, that's, that's an important point. I also read while we were prepping for this, I read it a couple weeks back when it came out, there's an op-ed by Ezra Klein in this op-ed, this idea of uh, supply side progressivism, right? And supply side economics is usually sort of a specter for people on the center left to left because it, is associated with the deregulation of the 1980s, um, Reaganism, things that you know progressives tend not to like. But there's an interesting idea, and I don't think it just has to appeal to progressives. To 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 sort of elucidate that or, or, or to tease that out, basically the reason why it harkens back to the 80s and conservatives is because in the 80s, supply side economics and policy was basically oriented to deregulate and make business doing business cheaper. Right. Make production of business cheaper. That's cheapening the supply side. Right. That's why it's called supply side economics or supply side policy. The consequences of that were basically that people in those companies just had the opportunity to exploit people and get a lot richer very quickly. Right. And so the 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 objective there, right, you can sort of tease that out of what Phillips is saying is that you produce a lot of goods cheaply, people can have that and they can and that has quality of life effects. And it's had all, all it trickles down. It trickles down. Generously, charitably speaking, mixed results. But what Klein is talking about is this idea in which the government can perhaps be more active in juicing the supply side of economics, right? I mean, a lot of what he talks about is a lot of times what Democrats, progressive Democrats talk about is increasing wages, paid family leave, maybe even like a universal basic income, something like that, which would allow, you know, working class Americans to spend their money on consumer goods, maybe, you know, put down money on a house instead of having to rent for their whole lives, which is an unfortunate situation that a lot of working class Americans are, are caught in today. So the idea being that the government can, can play a more active role he doesn't talk as much the, the, about supply chains in in the piece, but I think in terms of improving supply chain resiliency, I think that there's an aspect to it, which is, you know, even and sometimes it doesn't just mean the government spending more money on things, right? It can mean things like loosening up zoning regulations, right? We talked about this in a, in a, in a past insight with California's Senate Bill 9 and 10, which allow for upzoning. I think that that's... Uh, that's an important side of things, right? Is that we can, if if we want to increase, right, the the incomes and 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 wealth built up by working class Americans, which I think we should. One, we also have to respond to that because the point is, if you if you 
give those benefits, what you do is you increase demand. Right. And if supply remains the same, then price goes up with demand. Or that you get so shortages the, and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, or you get shortages. So the argument is the, the, the extra money that people have gotten is going to drive an inflation of prices, which is going to negate the value of the additional money that they now have. Right. Exactly. So basically it becomes pointless. And that's that's always that's always the counter argument against raising the minimum wage. And there's maybe some merit to it. Maybe Ezra is sort of recognizing that from a progressive's point of view, saying we actually do need to take this seriously. Right. And we need to care about the supply side of things, because if you want to keep prices the same while increases while increasing demand, you've got to increase supply too, right? to make more available to people to keep those prices at the same level to avoid inflation. Right. And like, I genuinely believe that these are things that are fully possible. I don't think that these, I mean... Obviously, you know, there you don't need to get state owned everything. Right. I, yeah, no, I, right, <laughs> right. I don't think that that needs that certainly doesn't need to be the case. I think that we can actually build a better world. I think it's totally possible to build a better world where people have access to more goods that, you know, generally make life easier. I mean, those can be simple. Those can be luxury goods like a, you know, like a flat screen TV we, we've, if we want that. We've done a lot of that, but there's a long way to go. And right. I think this is one of the points that I try to highlight in the articles. A lot of that has been achieved through the free market. And the free market has done a lot of incredible things about innovating and providing more things at lower prices, things like flat screen TVs, as Harry and I, we've talked about several yeah. times. It's incredible how cheap they are yeah. these days in many ways. But the point is that there's a limit to what markets can do. And if you've listened to Spectacles or read our sort of editorial statement of purpose and opinion, we recognize we're not like we're not against markets by any means. Harry and I, you know, we appreciate what markets can do and they can be really effective at certain things. But if you if you really, really care about the end that markets promise, providing more things for more people, improving our quality of life, then you need to be serious about recognizing where markets have deficiencies. Yeah. And they particularly have deficiencies in long-term thinking and in externalities. If you haven't heard the term externalities, what it means is basically costs that are incurred against a society basically against a surrounding area. Yeah, or like a third party, right? Like if there's a transaction yeah. between me and Philip, for example, and I sell Philip something that, you know, makes this room that we're in, you know, uncomfortable or pollutes the room or something like that, and then someone else who's in the room, for example, would bear the cost of that as well. Right. There, are, there right. are costs associated that are not just between... Costs that the, affect besides the, the, the purchaser and the producer, basically. Right. Yeah. One of those great examples is climate change. As it worsens, it's going to become less of an externality and actually affect companies. So maybe we'll see some change of behavior, but right. that's, you know, could be slow on that front. But the point is that markets have a tendency to ignore those external consequences because they don't matter to the bottom line. And so you can generate lots of problems like climate change that way or like environmental pollution that gives kids in Michigan cancer. And it's also not very good at long-term thinking because it's about short-term return on investment. How can we get our money back as quickly as possible, as right. effectively, as, as efficiently as possible? And I highlighted truck freight as an example of short-term thinking. I mean, long-term, what would we rather have? Good rail freight or truck freight? And if you haven't read the article, you should, but I sort of lay out a vision in which I think it's very appealing to go for rail freight, but the trouble is it takes long-term investment and commitment. It's a huge upfront investment. And it's supposed to be that between the public and the private sphere, 
one of the responsibilities of the government in a capitalist society is, or a liberal democratic, liberal economic society mm -hmm. is supposed to be that the government can take on those long-term things. Right. Because it has the ability to handle that and it's not about profit. So it can take those losses in the short term, right? That's the whole point right. in many ways is you can, you can invest in the public good without promise of return. But we haven't seen that essentially. Yeah. We've seen an inactive government, which is failing to do those things, mm -hmm. partly because also democracies can be bad at long-term thinking for a number of reasons, a couple of incentives that I talked about in the article. But, you know, I just think that's that's really crucial. Right. I think that that's important to understand. And it's tricky. I mean, one example right now is I think, you know, the United States Senate passed on a bipartisan basis an act to revitalize or reinvigorate the production of semiconductors, which are a little integral to making the chips that we all have in all, like, all our electronic devices. And that's been one of the huge problems. We've had a huge semiconductor shortage, right? So that's a lot of electronics and stuff have become more expensive. Cars have become more expensive because they all have computers in them now. So they have so I think that, right, so the Senate has passed a, a bill to try and reinvigorate the, the semiconductor production in the in the United States. There are a lot of challenges to that that are not simply monetary that I'm not going to get into, but they've passed it. It's for whatever reason, I can't fathom why it's sitting in the House. The House hasn't passed it. I haven't looked super closely at the bill. There might be something in it that is objectionable. I don't know. But these are the kinds of things that, you know, they're... I'm in favor of a free trade. I think free trade is generally good. Global trade is good. I think we've all benefited from it. And there have been downs serious downsides, which and the bottom line is far too often gone to the wealthiest Americans, the wealthiest corporations without us all sharing in the benefits. But all that said, I think generally globalization and free trade are good, but it does introduce these problems when you get a global pandemic like COVID, which can be disruptive to international cooperation. And you also see, I think, geopolitically now, the return of the nation state countries retreating back into their own corners and, you know, just hedging against what seems to be happening, the trends in, in, in world politics and the world economy. It makes sense to build a more resilient supply chain at home. Obviously, that can't be done in its entirety, and I don't think it should be. I think global inter interdependence and global trade is good for we are making not us not want to, want to fight each other, right? Yeah. I mean, right? I mean, I think that that's important, but it does make sense to have some kind of industrial policy that revitalizes the supply chain at home. Or, or as you deepen strategic connections to places like Australia with the AUK-US deal that we, we reported on recently. Right. If you haven't read about it, we'll, we'll link it in the show notes. That's an instance where maybe those supply chain relations could be more reliable because the strategic agreements and connections are, are more reliable right. and durable. Mm -hmm. And so as the US continues to do that and deepen strategic relations and ties with other places, you know, probably we're going to have to start thinking about tying our economic arrangements into those as right. we fear confrontation or yeah. or breakdown of, right. of 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 ties with other countries now of course the thing to be very afraid of there is that as you align your strategic relations and your economic relations the costs of war go down and the the, the prospects of war go up Right, right. I mean, if you, I think what you're saying is that if different sets of countries align into blocks or spheres of yeah. influence, that that might make war happen. So if we, you know, integrate more with just to explicate a little bit, if we integrate yeah. more with Australia strategically, that could raise the possibility of war with China, for example. If if, if our economic relations follow, because basically. The argument is that if you have economic relations with all these different countries in the world, you won't go to war with them because it'll be too costly. There are some limits to that theory, but it, it's, you know, 
pretty it's got some merit to it you right. know it is very powerful the the economic and monetary incentives to avoid going to war with people you trade with right china for example enormous trading partner it's very expensive it would be very costly to sever those ties right so on one on the one hand that's good on the other hand as we see sort of confrontation and heated rhetoric rising between dc and beijing and you see the deepening of strategic and military ties with places like australia and the increase of tariffs and things like this with China, right. if we start to sever those economic ties with China and start tying them up other places like Australia, that can be more secure, right? Right. But it can also feed into the possibility right. of war. Right. Because those costs start getting reduced right. going to war. So what you're saying, I think, right, and I think I agree, is it's... A balancing act, right? There's yeah. a balancing act yeah. between, you know, rivals, adversaries, whatever you want to call them, allies, and also your domestic production and yeah. sort of balancing all that out to create a prosperous society where everyone, you know, shares in the benefits yeah. is is the key, but it is a balancing act in getting and to that. And there's a balance between securing that for your citizens and actually putting it at risk by making war more possible. Yeah, very true. That's very true. that's the great that's the great difficulty. That's very true. And if you're curious about that, as I said, we'll link the AUK-US and we talk about that sort of dilemma. It's called a security dilemma. We talk yeah. about it in the article. It's a very yeah. interesting one by Harry. Thank you. And on that, you know, very bright note, I think that's about it for today, right? Yeah. That's all for today. If you enjoyed, please consider subscribing to the podcast, rate us on iTunes, and share this episode with your friends or on social media. If you'd like to listen to each new episode of Focus and Insight read aloud, follow the link in the show notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to read or make a comment on the article we just discussed, there's also a link in the show notes to our website where you can sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. And find us on Twitter at Spectacles Media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks. Thanks.